Uh, I think it's important uh, to not have like that, that hero streak where you try to do everything. I think it also helps that this is my second startup. I think if you've been through it once before, um, you, you help, it helps you pace yourself a little bit better because everything is critical. You do got to move really fast. You also have to continue to live your life. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to 14 Minutes of SaaS, the show where you can listen to the stories and opinions of founders of the world's most remarkable SaaS scale-ups. This episode is part one of a three-part mini-series with Russ Heddleston, CEO and co-founder of DocSend, a content management and tracking system. Recorded in Collision, New Orleans, Russ talks about his career, which he kickstarted by interning for a string of superstar software companies. He discusses the pros and cons of starting a company with friends, says mobile-first strategies can be overrated, and touches on how people interact with content, their attention spans, and brings in even a little bit of deep learning. Great, thanks for having me on, Stephen. Brilliant. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about, about yourself and uh, your life history? <laughs> I try to sandwich it in uh, a concise manner. Um, my family was in the military, so I was an army brat growing up. So I you know, lived in Berlin for five years, lived in Denver, uh, lived in South Dakota, grew up mostly in South Dakota. I had the very good fortune uh, to go to Stanford for undergrad and grad in computer science. And uh, I had no idea what I was getting into coming from South Dakota. I certainly wasn't prepared for it, but um, that's basically how I got into to tech. Uh, spent some time building robots, decided software was a little bit better suited to me, much much faster paced. Um, I, after leaving Stanford, uh, worked at a company called Graystripe and ended up being their, their director of engineering. Um, and uh, it was a wonderful ride for a few years. They ended up selling the business to ValueClick uh, that was like my first taste of like, you know, like a startup, just kind of doing it from the beginning. I, I also interned at Trulia as their first uh, as their first intern back in 2006. Back in wow. the day, there were like five people there. And then um, yeah, I interned at Microsoft. Uh, I left Grace Tripe and went back to Harvard for business school. A lot of people who uh, were in uh, HPS with me had uh, you know consulting background or a business background, but for me, it was entirely new information. Um, I hadn't taken any business classes before, um, and it was really fascinating to see. Uh, probably the only business class I think before was doing this thing called the Mayfield Fellows Program at Stanford, which is, for anyone at Stanford, they should definitely apply to this. It's an amazing nine-month work-study entrepreneurship program. Um, but yeah, HBS, great experience. I started a company called Pursuit. Uh, on the one hand, it failed. On the other hand, it succeeded because we were talent acquired by Facebook, but raised a seed round of funding, uh, got you know 50 customers, ran it for a year, decided it wasn't gonna work exactly like we thought, and then you know, we're very, very lucky to have the option at, at Facebook. Why would you describe uh, Pursuit as partially failed? In what sense? Well, you know, if you say, oh, my startup was acquired, that can mean so many different things. So I'm trying to be honest in that we didn't accomplish our original goal, which was you know building something of sustaining, uh, of lasting value. Uh, and we did a lot of really good work at Facebook, but it had nothing to do with pursuit. They had a, a theory at the time of what they wanted to do with it. They changed their mind, and then I ended up uh, being a, the product manager for the Pages team, which was really fun and really cool. That's why I say it was kind of a failure. And that's you know talent acquisitions are a really great outcome if you're in that type of spot. Sure. Uh, and certainly a great life experience. I just try to distinguish it from other types of acquisitions. 
And I think you, you wrote about being a product manager in Facebook, I believe. You, for you, it was, a, it was an important experience. It was a really wonderful and important experience. Yeah, I ended up writing a, a Quora post that ended up going somewhat viral. It still gets viewed a ton because uh, I got so many questions from people like, what does a product manager do? Or like, what does a product manager at Facebook do? Or I want to be a product manager. And they're like, okay, I'm just going to write this up in a, in a blog post. Because uh, it's more like a theory of what the product manager does, which which is really filling in for a lot of gaps. So I've been fortunate to, you know, I've been a software engineer. You know, I've worked in a lot of other functions. Once you started a company, you're kind of used to being a, a jack of all trades. And a good product manager doesn't involve themselves if they don't need to be involved. And they'll jump in and help the team. Uh, and it's not dissimilar from being a CEO in some ways, where you, you want the team to be successful. You want your product to launch. You want it to deliver on the value uh, that you set out to deliver. Uh, and so Facebook has just a really good framework for, for how they enable people to do that, uh, which is why I, I wrote that up. Um, you, you, you've created this amazing platform, uh, DocSend, which uh, allows salespeople to find uh, the best content and it tracks the content. It's a really good content management system. But one thing that stood out to me is that DocSend connects the sales and marketing by attributing content, content usage uh, to revenue. It's a very cool uh, value proposition, but you were also telling me before this uh, that it's a very horizontal play and, and it's a very flexible platform. Tell us about DocSend. Sure, so um, I, I also interned at Dropbox in 2011, ah. and so some of the, the concepts for DocSend are, are come from my time there, being more familiar with how, how uh, you know, the content management world is organized. And I was surprised after leaving Facebook that people were still sending attachments like in a B2B setting. Like the PDF was created in 1993 <laughs> and it's still the state of the art. Yeah. Send the PDF out as an attachment, that way it's more secure. <laughs> and it's like, I think we can probably do better than that. Uh, but there were a lot of other solutions you could use to send a link. And so the question was, well, why aren't people using those things? Like, what's missing? What's wrong? What can we do? And so when we created DocSend, we decided that it's got to be easier to send a DocSend link than it is to send an attachment. Like, it can't be any additional effort. And then we have to provide you as the sender enough value that you're going to change your behavior. And, you know, because like, you... Like one of the things, like in, if you're in B two C, like you, you can't go like talk to people. Like there are too many of them. Like if you're an enterprise software, you can make people use your software. It doesn't have to be very usable software. But if you're if you're trying to create something where people change their behavior on their own with their own volition, it's got to be easy to use and very intuitive. So that was the very first part of DocSend and why we built it. I think there's also a larger trend of um, data is making everyone more intelligent and more efficient. And one of the things we very quickly realized with DocSend is that if you send a link and not an attachment, you're able to track information that is very valuable to certain people and can actually help make everyone a lot better at their jobs. And so you know, with that in mind, uh, after we launched DocSend, there, we saw there are a few different use cases for it. So sales and marketing teams, for instance, a great use case. Uh, but also for like financial firms, DocSend is a great use case because it's easy to use, it's very secure, you can watermark things, you can have whitelists. Uh, but under the hood, it's very similar technology uh, in that you're trying to visualize this content in you know, a browsing experience and then maybe let people download it or not, depending on what you like to enable. So it's horizontal in that sense, but it works better from a growth perspective if we uh, don't make people do the guesswork of why is this useful to them. So if we come into a sales and marketing team, we have verticalized positioning for what we do. So we'll go to a marketer and say, hey, right now you have no idea what content your sales team is sending. You have no control over that. You get asked for a lot of stuff. 
Like Docsun will show you what they're using, what they're not using, you can keep everything up to date, and you don't have to guess at what's gonna be the most impactful for the business, the data will tell you. That's great, that's a little bit different than what we tell an investment banker, it's a little bit different than what we tell a salesperson. Because like if you're a salesperson, you really wonder what's going on behind those closed doors at those meetings I'm not invited to, yeah. and then you just get a yes or no back at the end of it. And the content's actually a wonderful Trojan horse to like collect some of this information about what's going on there. Um, and so you know, that's definitely gonna be a theme for us and from a marketing perspective is, is a great way to, to spread awareness for what we do and also add a lot of value to the community. The, the stat about there's no best day to send content was interesting because there are all these kind of like folklorish type you know, pieces of advice we heard. It's like, <laughs> oh, you always gotta send your email on a Tuesday at 3 p.m. <laughs> yeah. And you know, there are other uh, technology providers that will do email tracking stuff and we don't do any of that. We really just stick with the content. Um, and what was interesting is independent of when you send someone an email, like when people choose to consume that content, like you know, sit down and actually take a read through it. Like I saw your email, okay, there was some deck in there I was supposed to look at as a follow-up. Like when they consume that, it happens like pretty evenly throughout yeah. the week, um, which is just kind of interesting. And if nothing else, we can just dispel the notion that uh, you know, depending on when you send it, you might really dictate you know, if they're gonna read it or not. So you can and, move and on and worry about something else. <laughs> and it's, it can be a bit self-defeating because if, if everybody is saying the best time to post on LinkedIn is, is between this hour and that hour on this day, then if everyone's doing the same thing, it mm -hmm. actually, it actually inverts, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's kind of like a Waze-ish thing where if everyone's taking that route, it's no longer yeah. the best route. And the thing that we can do that's unique is because we're tracking how long someone's looking at each page, we're, we're actually really in the weeds understanding when knowledge transfer is happening. And like that kind of happens like throughout the week. The only other thing I thought that was interesting about that is that people look at content a lot less on weekends. Makes sense. Hopefully they're out like enjoying life and stuff. When they do look at it, it's always on their mobile phone. Yeah, and, and, yeah, yeah. and actually people do look at content a lot outside of work hours, but it's always on their mobile phone, um, which I thought was just like good to know as well that sometimes that's when information transfer happens. It's on, they're on the go. At least they're finding time for it. Absolutely. Actually, following on from that, I did read somewhere that you, you, you said that mobile is important, but it's overrated. Uh, <laughs> tell us a bit about that. <laughs> well, that was another surprising thing where you know, people were saying, well, mobile is everything. Like, well, is it Facebook? Mobile was everything. Uh, and so you know, we really had to have a mobile first strategy. And like that was the right thing to do. And whenever we would make designs for stuff, we would always design it for mobile first. And so you know, one could say, well, maybe that's true for B2B content as well. Maybe everyone is only consuming this content on their mobile phone all the time. And in a data-free world, it's hard to know. Is that true? Is that not true? That has big implications for the people who are creating that content, like font size, how much should go on per page. Like you're trying to make it you know, on a phone readable. Um, it turns out that the majority of views are on desktop which, I don't know, intuitively makes sense to me, but that's the thing with data, like your intuition might be wrong, <laughs> so you better check it out. And so most people are looking at things from their desktop computer. The thing is you can't ignore mobile because some of those views that happen outside of working hours might be some of the most important ones, uh, even though they're a minority of them. So again, it just kind of paints a fuller picture um, that is helpful for everyone. Uh, Russ, like most of the, the successful founders that, uh, that I interviewed, um, you know, you're really in, in your, you're really into what you're doing, and uh, you're obviously uh, the adrenaline is there. You can, I can feel it. Um, how do you keep a work-life balance when you're, when you're managing a, um, a company that's uh, that's growing like Doc said? 
Well, it's, it's certainly a challenge. Uh, I think it's important uh, to not have like that, that hero streak where you try to do everything. Um, it's useful to have good co-founders. So my two co-founders are, are, have been co-workers and friends for many, many years, over a decade, and they know each other quite well too. Whenever um, you know, people uh, ask me for advice about starting a company and they're like, oh, I need to find a technical founder, they like, well, it's kind of like getting married. It's something you should definitely put a lot of consideration into. Uh, and having good co-founders is a good way to maintain work-life balance later on, because it's not all on you. Um, and they can help even out some of the areas that you're weaker at. Uh, I, I tend to over-delegate <laughs> things. That's just my, my uh, personality. And so, uh, you know, I, I do delegate whenever possible, and I, I don't want to do it all myself, and that helps contribute to work-life balance. Um, you know, I just got en engaged uh, six weeks ago. Thanks. Wow. So you know, finding finding time to make sure the rest of life continues to move forward. Cool. Um, and then I think it also helps that this is my second startup. I think if you've been through it once before, um, you, you help. It helps you pace yourself a little bit better because everything is critical. You do got to move really fast. You also have to continue to live your life. <laughs> yeah. Part two, Russ makes some very interesting and counterintuitive observations around fundraising pitch decks and answers the question of whether voice interfaces could kill DocSend. You've been listening to 14 Minutes of SaaS. Thank you to Ketsu for music provided under a Creative Commons license. This episode was brought to you by me, Stephen Cummins. If you enjoyed the podcast, please don't forget to share it with your network, subscribe to the series, and give the show a rating.